What is going on, people? Welcome back to another episode of A Need to Read. I've got a book review for you today. It's not a guest episode, but obviously you can read the title of the episode, so you know that. Today, it's on Utopia for Realists. Now, this book was great, but it wasn't that great, and I've had to really think about why it wasn't and what sort of, where the pitfalls were. And I'm going to get into them in a moment. Before we start, let's have a quick chat about the sponsor of the podcast. Now, I was thinking the other day about this quote, and the quote says, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, and the second best time is now. And I feel like that applies to pretty much anything, which I'm assuming is where the quote comes from, is you're better off starting something five years ago, so you're better at it now. But the second best time to do something is now. Do you get where I'm going with this? With therapy, it's something we probably all should have been doing a while ago. But whatever in life has got in the way, I was scared to do it, didn't know whether it was the right time. Whatever got in the way, got in the way. Well, if you have decided that this year coming up, 2021, is going to be the year that you take charge of your mental health and really just... Take control, do all that you can for it, read, meditate, speak to a therapist. If you're deciding to speak to a therapist, essentially where I'm getting at is BetterHelp sponsor the podcast. You get 10% off your first month with them. It's a big financial commitment, but with them it's not as big as going to see someone in real life. I was paying £90 a session when I first started. With BetterHelp, you don't even pay 50 and with your 10% off your first month, you're saving about 20 quid as well. So if the time is right for you to start chatting to someone, get an impartial person to talk through factors of your life that you might not want to talk about with friends or family, then go to the link in the description. It is betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read, and that'll give you 10% off your first month. But that's over for the sponsors. Let's get into the episode. Now, Utopia for Realists, it was recommended to me by Shona on the podcast that we did back in June or July now. It seems such a long time ago. And I've had it since then. It's just been sat on my shelf, sat on my shelf. It didn't seem like it was the right time for me to be reading about politics. I couldn't really be bothered with it. So I brought it away with me to Bali. And I'm really glad that I did. Although, here's the pitfall of the book. And I'll give you this one early. It took me about four weeks to read it because I just put it down and I picked up another book and got distracted. And then, I mean, shock horror, I wasn't reading that much for about a week or two when I first got here when I was just adjusting. So I was reading, sorry, like 10 pages a day. For me, that's not that much. That might be a lot for some people. But I tried to figure out why I put it down and why I didn't really have the motivation to pick it back up again. And I think sometimes people just can't be bothered. And I was in one of those moods. Luckily, when I picked up the book again, realised it was absolutely banging. And it was full of facts. And it was full of things that I'm really glad that I know now. It is essentially a bit of a lefty manifesto. And when I say lefty, I mean in terms of left-wing politics. Or progressive politics, as it were. I think I might have liked it so much because that's a little bit of an echo chamber for the way that I lean with my political views. So I'd be very, very interested to speak to someone who's very conservative, who's read the book and see what they think. But in the book, the author does actually address the fact that 
he himself might not accept the arguments against his points in the book. And, I mean, fair play. I think a lot of people don't admit that they don't want to be challenged on things. So he does admit it, and then he goes on to say about how he's managed to combat that, which was an interesting part, but that's right at the end of the book, so you do have to read the whole book before you get to that point. But it was good nonetheless. Let's get into what was in the book. The whole idea of a utopia is is just a place where nothing goes wrong. Which, I mean, I feel that would probably be quite boring because we'd have nothing to talk about and everything would be perfect. And I don't think that humans really want everything to be perfect. I think we enjoy a little bit of suffering. And he says that our problem is not that we don't have it good enough. Our problem is that nowadays in the world, in terms of like starving people, poverty, all of that stuff, we've got it too good. And we don't have any hope for better. We can't see anything better. And as humans, we need hope to survive. Otherwise, we get bored. Otherwise, we get depressed. Otherwise, we get anxious. It's a very, very interesting point that's made very, very early on into the book. And my sort of analysis of that, it kind of led me to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Now, if you don't know what Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, you obviously didn't do uh, half a psychology A-level like I did. But it's a triangle where at the bottom you've got your general needs, like a roof over your head, safety, food, water. It then goes up to, I believe, relationships and like the second level. I'm butchering this, I haven't got it in front of me. But look, this isn't a perfect podcast, I'm not a perfect person. So, above that it goes into like relationships. Above relationships, I think you've got like hobbies and interests. And then you've got self-actualization. I think back in the olden days when there was loads of poverty and loads of people were starving, worldwide that is, including the West, we were so focused on just surviving that we didn't really have time to think about the other problems that we had, like relationship problems, um, problems to do with other people wearing t-shirts that we want to wear that will make us sad or seeing people on Instagram that are skinnier than us or prettier than us. It wasn't about... So even though we've got it pretty good in some ways, the other ways is kind of balancing out that we still get a little bit of shit, which I mean, that's really kind of our brains to do to us that now that we're not starving and we're not fighting for survival, we've got other problems that we can create, which is fantastic news because like I said, obviously people want to suffer. So it seems. Now, there's a British philosopher called Bertrand Russell and he said that man doesn't need for his happiness only this and that, but he needs hope and change. So this is an argument against utopia. So if there was a utopia where everything was perfect, we'd probably still create our own problems. We'd probably still sort of yearn for change and and hope for something better or something different, which is very, very interesting. Have you got the uh, picture yet? That it is, it is very interesting. As like a, as far as a book about politics goes, it was pretty cool because it makes you think. As I was going through it, I kept thinking about, oh, what am I going to talk about? What am I going to talk about? 
but I don't want to spend too long chatting about the book and, and ruin a load of different facts for you because there's a lot of facts in there. And obviously, you're not going to remember all of them. But there are a few that stood out to me, which I'm going to get into now. Now, before anyone thinks I'm just some sort of communist that wants the world to run like this, I'm not. I've read Animal Farm by George Orwell. I know that communism doesn't work. Let's talk about free money, universal basic income. So for those of you that don't know, universal basic income is a program that will be run through the government where they'll give each household or individual a certain amount of money each month that is just free to do whatever you want with it. You could even buy drugs with it if you really, really wanted to, or you could use it for better things like creating your own business, starting a side hustle, going to car boot sales, buying Pokemon cards and sell them on eBay. Sorry, before I was rudely interrupted there, you might have heard the door crashing. That was one of the dogs that lived around the villa. Not my dog. Just comes here every now and then and hits on the door. And also, the little shit bag, as cute as it is, ate one of my AirPods. So I'm one AirPod down. Can you imagine it? I'm all buzzing because I've got a new pet dog that isn't mine. So I don't have to walk it. I just get to stroke it. Great. Eats one of my AirPods. Not happy about it. But back to it, I was saying about selling Pokemon cards and being like a real entrepreneur. So you can do what you want with this money. And the example that you use in the book is about a Native American casino in, surprisingly, America. They were told that they won't have to pay tax on any of the money that they made from the casino and that the money will just be distributed through the community. So it was kind of like a communist casino, which is a weird concept. And... I'm pretty sure there is a stereotype about Native Americans like really liking gambling because I've seen it in loads of films and usually when it's in films it's to do with stereotypes. So I could be wrong. But I've seen it in films. Each family after about 4 years of this um casino running was getting about $6,000 a year. And with that extra money that was pumped into the economy into into the people for free by the way they weren't having to work at the casino to get this money the crime rate dropped drug use dropped alcohol abuse dropped and the the community just became a nicer place to live now if we think about how much money it would cost to give everyone a grand in the UK per month it would be a lot right but it might just pay for itself. That's the argument that he makes in the book. I'm not going to go into how it would. I'm, I mean, I've read the book, but I don't know that much. It would be something I'd be interested in looking into again in the future, but not just for now. Once again, fascinating. So how do they eradicate poverty altogether? Because poor people do dumb things. I had to pause there because I didn't say that. I was quoting the group um, book. So there's a chapter on why do poor people do dumb things. And it happens to do with boredom and happens to do with like wanting better and just not knowing any better. But he explains it far better in that chapter than I ever could. And I hope you don't think that I have anything against people that have less income than I do. Because I don't. But let's move on. 
next part of the book that I thought was quite interesting was to do with how much money is pumped into different parts of business and how that impacts people. Now, this is a fact. A British think tank came up with this fact. Didn't make it up. They researched it. So for every one pound that is spent on advertising in the UK, it creates seven pounds worth of spend in stress, in overconsumption, pollution, and therapy. However, for every one pound that's spent on a bin man in the UK, there is 12 pound produced towards people's health and happiness and well-being. So do we need to spend more money on ads or do we need to spend more money on bin men? That is worth a thought. Another part of the book that I can absolutely get behind and really, really interesting part. One was called The Race of Race Against the Machine. Kind of like Rage Against the Machine. See what he did there? And then there was a part of less working hours and they were talking about getting down to the 15-hour work week. Now, back in the early 1900s, the Americans were promised no more than 35 hours work a week and now in america people work more than most places in the world apart from like japan and china but for the western world the americans work the most it's like 50 60 hours a week so talk about machine automation like technology is going to interfere with our jobs that's going to be coming sooner probably rather than later and that's going to make a lot of people redundant it's interesting because when I used to work in sales, I used to work in a call centre selling health insurance. I used to joke with people all the time that they probably need to buck their ideas up, otherwise there's going to be a Siri that will take over them. But there is some truth in that because how long are these jobs going to go on for until we've got a machine that can respond in a better way than a human can? I don't think it'll be too long. And I think that goes for any industry, really. How long until we've got machines that can do operations better than doctors? Or machines that can lay bricks or roofs better than bricklayers and roofers. I don't think it's going to be all too long. And what are the people going to do? I think there's going to be a lot of people that are unemployed. It makes you think. It will, it will lead me on to my next point in a moment. But think about your job. And I don't want to be depressing here. But do you think a machine could do it? Given the fact that, like, in 1980, what it cost for a terabyte was 50 million, and it was the size of a tennis court. And then by 2013, the PS4 came out, and a there was four terabytes worth of storage in there, and it cost less than $200. I think we need to wake up to the fact that machines are going to take over. All these conspiracy theorists are worried about lizard people. I need to wake up. This it's the machines that's going to get us. And that is why we need to have a look at redistributing wealth, going back to that universal basic income. Because otherwise, we're all just going to be unemployed. We're all going to be sad. And we're all going to be fighting robots. And, I mean, like with people working in the call centre like I used to, the robot's probably going to do a better job than you at fighting in like 20 years' time. So... It's very, very, it's eye-opening reading this book. I kind of thought about a lot of the things that were written in this book already. Like I said, it was a bit of an echo chamber for me. But if you, if you disagree with the fact that a machine could do a better job than you, then read the book. It's not me telling you that. 
it's pretty much fact. There'll be a machine that'll come along and be able to do a way better podcast than me. What am I going to do? I'll be fucked. <laughs> I'll have to come up with something better. We all will. Or I best cross my fingers and toes and hope that there's a universal basic income comes out and I'll get a job that's 15 hours a week and the rest of my time will be used for leisure and fun activities if we had a good government and a good load of machines that would do all the work for us. I've digressed there massively. And if I've offended some people, I'm very sorry about that. But um, truth hurts sometimes and you've got to read this book and you'll understand where I'm coming from. When it comes to less working hours, this got me thinking. Why do we think working more is like a better life? Because I was on the phone to someone the other day. And they go, oh, you don't look like you're doing much work out in Bali. I was like, yeah, isn't, isn't that the point? Like, isn't the point in life actually to live it and not work that much? Like, I don't earn much money off the podcast, but I earn enough. And, like, maybe I'll strive for more every now and then. Um, I want a couple more sponsors to to support the podcast. I'll maybe come up with a few business ideas to support the podcast. But I think the general idea in life is that we live it. So when the point comes that the machines do take over, which I repeat, they will, we best hope we're ready to start living and doing fun things. Because it's going to be great but only if the government starts giving out free money. So that is my case for universal basic income. Basically, please give it to us or life's gonna be shit in 20 years. And that is why I will not be president of uh, our prime minister or whatever. And also I have no interest in it because I'm not a psychopath. I've digressed again. Right, back to Utopia for realists. Last bit that I'm gonna go into is a couple of interesting things. And as it's a lefty manifesto, like I said earlier in the book, they wouldn't be able to talk about anything if they didn't talk about borders. And they bring some interesting facts to the table on borders. Because when you look at um, people that vote for people like UKIP, and they just want to shut the borders down, let's get a hard border, you know what I mean? And yeah, do you know what? I did just stereotype then. Um, <laughs> their arguments are invalid people are the, all terrorists I hate you with a fact right here between 1975 and 2015 the chances of being killed by a terrorist attack in the United States was 3.6 million to 1 and the largest contributor to that was of course 9-11 outside of 9-11 only 41 people died from a terrorist attack in the United States. However, that's what people are scared of when it comes to immigration. There was a few others in there, which I hadn't wrote down in my notes, but I will get them up right now, because this will be good. There'll be a time when you're going to have to have an argument with someone about immigration, I'm sure of it, unless you just choose who you spend your time with wisely. But as people, we don't often do that. They'll take our jobs. That is a good one. Everyone's heard it. If I'll just read it word for word as it's come in the book. They'll take our jobs. We've all heard this one before. 
When a huge number of women suddenly entered the labour market in the 1970s, the papers were filled with predictions that the flood of cheaper working women would displace male breadwinners. There is a stubborn misconception that the job market is like a game of musical chairs. It's not. Productive women, seniors or immigrants, won't displace men, young adults or hard-working citizens from their jobs. In fact, they create more employment opportunities. A bigger workforce means more consumption, more demand, more jobs. If we insist on comparing the job market to musical chairs, then it's a version where a new party animals keep showing up with more chairs. It makes so much sense. And often you find the people that say, oh, they're taking our jobs. I bet people coming into the country are guaranteed to not be job snobs. There's a lot of job snobs out there. So if anyone that says that they're taking their jobs could just shut the fuck up and read Utopia for realists, we'd have a great time. Look at me bringing out my political views. Before I get into um, why you should read the book, I'm just going to stop it there. I'm not going to give you any more from it because I've done 20 minutes. It's, it is a good book. If you're um, left-leaning, you're going to love it. If you're right-leaning, you should read it. That's what I would say. So I, I suppose what I'm saying is it's kind of good for everyone. It is quite statistic-heavy. Don't expect to go into it and remember everything. But if you're going into any book thinking you're going to remember everything, then you're going to have a bad time. But that is it from me. I've got a quick thing to say about the year that we've just had and I, I was going to do a post about this and I was going to do a video but I think it's better that I just talk about it without the pressure of having to have that filmed or for me to edit into like a seamless video is 2020 people are looking at it as if it's been a really bad year and sure some shit things have happened the world's been on fire not good there's a massive virus about I don't know if you've heard about it it's been killing a few people everyone has to wear masks because of it so you don't get to see if someone's really fit when you look at them you only see half their face it's been a nightmare but it hasn't been all bad if anyone thinks that they've had a really bad year I just want you to really reflect on the lessons that you've learned this year maybe the relationships that you've built or relationships even that you've lost because you'll be grateful that you've lost them someday. I'm sure of it. It's just, it's, it's getting to me on social media. Everyone's like, oh, 2020 was so shit. But if everyone starts saying it, everyone's going to start believing it. And we're all going to have that one year of our lives that we're like, oh, 2020 was the worst year of my life. I don't even want to think about it. I know so many people that have done great things this year. And I can guarantee that you, whoever you are listening to it, have done something great this year. Done something worthwhile. And even if that is just survive and even if that is just not fucking killing yourself for some people, then you've done a good job and you've learnt lessons. I just think it's really important that people don't spin it off with a negative mindset for the year. And I know I sound like a prick saying that, but what else are you meant to do? Are we just going to lay down and accept that this is a bad year? I've had days this year where I've been sat on the floor of my bedroom, just crying my eyes out, couldn't even move. I've had days where I felt like a burden to the people around me 
And that's a dangerous thought to have. But from those days, I've learned so much. I've learned so much about myself, about when to recognize certain feelings, about like what it feels like to be at that point, to know that I need to do stuff to not get that low again. And it's really, really important. And I just want to say to everyone listening, thank you very much for listening all year. Because you've been fucking great for me and for my mental health. And I know that I've been all right for some of yours as well. So thank you. And also, you're welcome. The next year that's coming up, if this has been a shit year in your view, then you've just got to do something about it to change it for next year. Otherwise, we're just going to be laying down and accepting it. And I don't think that's okay. You've got to do the things that will make you feel good. And I talk about them all the time. Reading, number one. Read broad. Find stuff you're interested in. If you're sad, read about your mental health. Read about how you cannot be sad. Not everything's going to apply to you. But it will help. I always say, if you throw enough shit at the wall, something will stick. Try some new things. Try meditating. And don't just try it for a week. Try it for a month. If you do 20 minutes of meditation or 10 minutes of meditation a day for a month and come back and tell me you feel no difference, I'll call you a liar. On top of meditating, try journaling. Get there in the morning, write down what you're grateful for. Even if you have to fucking force it and be like, right, I'm grateful for my legs. I'm grateful that I can breathe. I'm grateful for someone's health or my health. And if you've got a dog, be grateful for your dog. Because I can't tell you how annoying it is not to be around my dog when the ones in Bali just eat my AirPods. Learning to practice gratitude and learning to read not learning to read, you can already read, but practicing gratitude, meditating, learning to create some space in between stimulus and response will be the best thing you ever do. If you think that therapy won't help you, I'd probably reconsider that. You hear me talk about it at the start of every podcast, but therapy genuinely changed my life and that is for the better. There's absolutely 0% chance I'd be sat here talking on a microphone to you people if I hadn't gone to therapy. So I know I've been preaching now for about four minutes, but if you think the time's right for you to go to therapy and you've got a bit of spare money coming around, don't wait for the bars to open up to spend 200 quid on a night out. Just give therapy a go for a month, two months, eight weeks. It'll cost you about 400 quid. You get 10% off your first month. There's your ad. But it doesn't matter if you use BetterHelp through my code or not, or if you go and find a therapist in real life. What I want is people to speak to someone that is outside of their friends and their family so they can understand themselves a bit better. If you combine all of those things and other new things like learning to do an instrument or do an instrument or drawing, anything, get creative. Your life will become better and sometimes we all just need a bit of a wake-up call. If this five-minute rant was too much and you're never going to listen to the podcast again, and that's okay. But just please try one of those things for the next year. But before I let you go, after that massive long run, I've got a quote that ties in quite, nice, uh, quite nicely to that. You'll notice that I haven't really edited out of this podcast because I just like to spit it all out in one take nowadays. This quote is by Frederick Nietzsche, and he says, To live is to suffer, and to survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. So you've all suffered this year. Everyone suffered. There's no denying that. But we just got to find the meaning in it. 
that is it from me. Thanks for listening to that rant, if you're still there and not turning it off. Um, could have been a complete crock of shit, but if it's helped one person, I mean, I'd rather it helped more than one person, but I suppose that'll be good enough for me. So thank you for listening. Love you all. Really grateful for everyone for listening to the podcast. Like I said earlier, that's it from me. Love you. Bye.